0: Well, we are going to come to our final reading of our Sermon on the Mount series. Uh, So if you want to open your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 7, and we'll be reading from verses 21 to 29. Matthew 7, verses 21 to 29. And they say this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who heed, hears these words of mine And it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. Well, I'm going to invite Andy up, and as he makes his way up, I'm going to pray for him before he opens God's word for us. Lord, we thank you for your words and that we can have it freely open for us this morning. Father, I pray that we would all have warmed hearts and receptive ears for this message that you have for us this morning. Lord, I thank you for Andy and for all the time he's had to prepare in your words to spend time in it. And as he comes and speaks to us now, I pray that you'd bless us all this morning. Amen. Thanks, Andy. Amen.
1: Thank you, Josh. It's good to be with you. Good to see so many people here in the church. And uh, it's a privilege to be in the homes of those of you who are tuning in. If you're tuning in, bear in mind this is just a practice run for the 11 o'clock service. That's going to be brilliant. Just, just so sorry you're going to miss it. Would you believe, would you believe that it was way back on the 18th of April that we started our journey with Jesus up the mountain and we've had so many great studies since, that, since then uh, on looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Today, we're coming down. All those other weeks we've been going up, listening to Jesus, looking at what he taught, but today we are coming down. Before I move to the passage, I'd just like to share with you some sort of almost mental pictures that I have uh, of, of, this, of what's happening and, uh, and that time, all those years ago. Of course, it's, it's a real place, if you, go to, if you go to Israel, uh, just up behind Capernaum are some rolling hills. And uh, one of those is called the Mount of Beatitudes. And it's been recognized as the place where all this happened. It's been recognized as such for the last 1,400 years. So it's a pretty good chance that it's the right place. But let me say straight away, I don't care if it's the right place or the wrong place. What I do know is that the right place was either there or very near there. We, can, we can gauge that from what Scripture tells us. Also, I don't know what picture you've got in your mind when we've been talking about Jesus going with his disciples up a mountain. I've got a mental picture of a mountain, uh, and, uh, and this is nothing like that. Uh, we, would, we would call it more gently rolling hills, I think. Let me put it into perspective if you were standing today on the very top, the pinnacle of the place that they call the Mount of Beatitudes there in Israel, you would still be 70 feet below sea level. It's not like Everest. Israel is, is very low. In fact, if you stood on the shores of the Dead Sea there, a, a little to the south of the Sea of Galilee, you would be something like 1,400 feet below sea level you would be the lowest person in the world when you were standing on those shores i've often wondered why did god choose that land to reveal himself to humankind and i don't have an answer and i probably never will have an answer but one of the thoughts that's gone through my head is this that he chose The lowest place on earth when humankind could not get any lower. That was the place he chose to reveal himself to humankind. And that seems to be in his nature. We hear from time to time testimonies of people of how they came to know the Lord Jesus. What was it that that happened in their lives that made them commit themselves to this love of God? And very often you will hear them speak of heartache. You'll hear them speak of heartbreak. You'll hear them speak of being in a very low place, perhaps the lowest place they've ever been. And it was there that suddenly the love of God was revealed to them. It was in that low place that they were brought to the cross of the Lord Jesus. And they found that so life-changing. Well, these rolling hills, as they are, they, they roll down to the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee is, is itself the lowest freshwater lake in the world. Uh, even though it was sea level to Jesus and all those people who lived around the lake in Capernaum and Bethsaida and other places like that, uh, it's still about about 700 foot below the level of the Mediterranean, which is just not very far away. And again, it gives me this picture that Jesus calls us at sea level, but he wants to take us higher. And that's what we've been doing over these past weeks and months. We've been with Jesus as he's taken us higher. And if you go with Jesus to where he wants you to be, then you'll find not only is it a place of beauty, uh, and this the Mount of uh, Beatitudes really is a beautiful place, Not only is it a place of beauty, but of course, as you go higher, you see more things. Or you see things more clearly. Or you get things in in a different perspective. And that's what happens, I believe, when we put our hand into the hand of the Lord Jesus and we walk with him where he wants us to go. He will take us to a beautiful place. He'll take us to places where we'll see things, maybe for the first time, that we've never seen before see things more clearly maybe our perspective will be changed you know since I retired quite a few years ago now uh, it's been one of the great privileges of my life that uh, Ian Mayo encouraged Maureen and myself to learn to lead trips to Israel And, and so I've been up this Mount of Beatitudes many many times and I did a quick rough mental count uh, and it seems to me that I think I've taken about a thousand people up there, best part of a thousand people anyway, to this place of Beatitudes. And what we do is we just take them there and they stand on the hill and I say to them, don't look at me because I'm not a very good view. Uh, I say, turn around, just, just look at the view. Look down to the Sea of Galilee. And I stood behind them and I, I had them there for quite a long time. As I just read to them, without comment, read to them, Great chunks of the Sermon on the Mount. We've taken all these 13 weeks to go through it. Well, I've just had them standing there in the, in the hot sun, listening to great chunks of the Sermon on the Mount. What's interesting is this, that at the end of these trips, I, I normally, over a coffee with, with some guests, or maybe over the dinner table, I ask them, what for you has been the highlight? Of course, there's so many highlights that I think that they would choose, and sometimes they do. You know, they've floated on the Dead Sea. They've had their picture taken, reading the book. Uh, that everyone, everyone wants that picture. They've walked through that, that long tunnel that King Hezekiah had built uh, as a defense uh, against invasion. You know, they've, they've, seen, they've been to, to uh, Manger Square in Bethlehem, just a stone's throw of where the first Christmas really happened. They've been with me uh, to Dan, I say with me because it's my favorite place, to, to see the source of the River Jordan just bubbling up through the ground, hundreds of springs in the foothills of Mount Hermon. They've seen some wonderful things. I hope, Ian, if you're watching, if, have I done a good job at selling the trips? I hope so. But what I find surprising is that on more than one occasion, People said to me their highlight was standing on the Mount of Beatitudes and just listening to God's word. Isn't that amazing? All the wonderful things they've done, all the wonderful things they've seen, and the highlight is standing on a hill that is not much different to a hill in Surrey, listening to some old pensioner, reading God's word. Not explaining it, not commenting on it, just reading God's word. And there is something about the words of Jesus. And that's our focus today, because I believe the words of Jesus is the focus of our passage this morning. And I want to take our passage, I want to do it backwards. I want to start with them coming down and then kind of go back a bit and just see the last things that they heard when they were still up on the hill. So the last verses uh, in our passage were verses 28 and 29. Their mountaintop experience was over. And they were coming down. It, it, it's always like that. It's always like that. You may be a Christian, and if you're a Christian today, you will be able to point back maybe to what you call a mountain-top experience of being with Jesus Uh, Things just couldn't be better for you at that time. But they don't last. We always have to come down. Uh, And coming down, sometimes we come down to great difficulties. Think of the best example of this, the transfiguration, when Jesus took three of his closest disciples up a much higher mountain, by the way, we think this one is in the mountain range of Mount Hermon, up a high mountain, and there they began to see his glory in a way that they'd never seen it before and and what did Peter do he, he came to Jesus He said let us build some shelters here it was obvious what he wanted he wanted this opportunity just to go on and on and on he wanted it to remain so that they could stay there up there on the mountain but they couldn't they had to come down and to some of the experiences that, w- that awaited them they were very hard But they had to come down the mountain. But what did they come down with? You see, it struck me as I looked back over some of our studies that when they went up the mountain, uh, the Mount of Beatitudes, they were excited about being with Jesus. And they followed him. But when they came down, they were excited by his words. They were excited by his teaching. Uh, And they said, look, no one's ever taught like this man does. He's so different from all the other teachers we've known. And believe me, in their culture, at that time, there were hundreds, literally hundreds, of teachers. Sometimes they're called teachers of the law, as they are in our passage this morning. Sometimes they're called rabbis. Sometimes they're called scribes. Sometimes they're called Pharisees. But there were literally hundreds of people whose sole aim was to teach the law of God to everyone. And everyone had the responsibility to, get this, memorize it. That was their responsibility, to learn it and to memorize it. It's a skill we're losing, isn't it? We've got word processors, we've got phones, which at the touch of a button we can bring up a, I don't know, anything that's ever been written, probably. We think we don't have to commit it to memory, but it's a good thing. And the Orthodox Jews are still doing it today, still memorizing great portions of God's law. It is a good thing to do. But they said, despite knowing literally hundreds of teachers, they said that there was something different about the words of Jesus, something different about his teaching. And they told us what it was. They said that he was the one who spoke with authority. We get it in verse 29. That was the difference. You never heard Jesus say, well, I'm not sure what this means. It could mean this. It could mean that. You never hear Jesus saying, well, I think this and I think that. Jesus was God with us. He had that absolute knowledge and he spoke with the authority of the living God. And it was so different to all the other teachers that they had ever known. I jotted down a couple of verses because uh, about, I mean, obviously there are hundreds of verses we could have taken that just tell us stuff about this wonderful living Word of God. I've chosen one to show that it is unchanging. If we were in Oak Hall 100 years ago, we would still be looking at the same words and God would still be blessing us through those same words. In Matthew 24, verse 35, it says this, Heaven and earth will pass away, Jesus says, but my words will never pass away. What we're thinking of is something very permanent, something reliable, something that we can depend upon. It's unchanging. And also his words, they lead to life itself in John and chapter 6, we have an occasion when the teaching of Jesus was getting, was getting too tough for what I'll call his fair-weather friends. Oh, they had enjoyed being with him, but when he was teaching them, they said, oh, we can't handle this. And it says they turned their backs on him. They didn't follow him anymore. And you might remember that Jesus turned to his closest friends, his closest disciples, and he said to them, are you going to leave me too? We get it in John chapter 6. Do you remember what Peter's reply was? Where shall we go, Lord? Where shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. So the focus is on the words of Jesus. And now we're going back a bit uh, to verses 24 to 27. And we have, he's just told them a parable. And this parable is a strange parable because it's one that is absolutely well known and yet not known at all. The best way I can illustrate it is I remembered when I was preparing this that I actually spoke on this passage, the wise and the foolish builders, in a children's talk here in Oak Hall when we were meeting in the school. And in fact I didn't teach them what the parable was. I got the children to tell me what the parable was. And all the hands went up of the kids. They all knew it. And they told me about a wise builder and a foolish builder and about how one built his house on the rock and how one built his house on the sand. And, and then as the song say, says, the rains came down and the floods came up and the house on the sand fell flat, they knew it all and I tell you what, you'd never seen such proud parents oh they were sitting there looking very smug look at my Jimmy listen to my Sarah they know their Bibles they must have been very well taught, I'm just putting you know, could have gone through their heads couldn't it (laughs) and then I said to the children but what did it mean What did this parable, this story that Jesus told, what was the purpose of it? Well, the hands went down, but the parents were still looking smug. Yeah. They were still saying, well, my children knew most of the answers. Yeah. And they were looking very good. They were pleased. And then I have to say, first time I've ever done it, I was a bit mischievous. I'm not normally mischievous. But I was a little bit mischievous, and I said to the children, "Do you know, children, if you don't know the answer, I'm going to have to ask your mummies and daddies." Well, the whole thing changed. No longer did I have any eye contact with any parent there. In the, they were looking in their handbags, and women were doing the same. Uh, sorry, they were, uh, and they were, you know, brushing fluff off of their off of their trousers, or or blowing the nose of little, you know. Why? Well, they knew the story, but they didn't know why Jesus told it. And it was all about his words. You'll see when he explains the parable, he says twice, these people, the wise builder and the foolish builder, are people who hear these words of mine, both of them. It's a bit of a shock, isn't it? Because we kind of think in our minds that the foolish builder is out there somewhere, got nothing to do with church. You'd never find them in a church building. They spend their time on the beach or on their yacht or playing sport. They've got no interest in God. But that's not what Jesus said. He said, even the foolish builder is someone who hears these words of mine. Could be here in this gathering. Could be sitting next to you dare I say, could be speaking to you now. A foolish builder who hears the words of God but doesn't put them into practice. That's what Jesus said it meant. And the wise builder is the one who digs deep. The wise builder is the one, Jesus said, who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. Who lets themselves be changed by what God is saying. And, of course, only one of those builders had a foundation. And you think of it, it's out of sight. You would never guess it. I could take you round to my house today because we're having a little extension built. um, And I could tell you about its foundation. And they're lovely foundations. They really are very good foundations, but you wouldn't know. You'd have to take my word for it. It's all been covered up. It's all underground. You can't see it. And so it is that I believe Jesus is saying, you can't see who these foolish builders are. Because it's out of sight. The fact they've got no foundation is out of sight. They love being in the church. They share in the hymn singing. They share in the praying. They love all the activities. They say all the right words. And you don't know, I don't know, that they've got no foundation. And then a great storm comes. And we know the, we know the result. This great storm comes and it brings down the house that is built without any foundation. It, it seems almost cruelly apt that we're looking at this passage at a time when Western Europe is suffering what it is suffering. When people who thought they lived in strong, secure houses, safe from anything, suddenly find that a great storm has come and their houses have collapsed and been utterly washed away. We should be praying for these folk. When they're interviewed, you can just tell how shocked they are. Something has happened which they never dreamed could happen, would happen to them. Of course, beyond the words of Jesus, he's not talking about houses. It's just an illustration. He's talking about our lives and he's asking if our lives are built on a firm foundation. So, what is this future point? What is this future storm? What is this future great crash that's going to happen? Well, we get it in verse 25. No, 21. Jesus said these shocking words Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven can you imagine anything more shocking on that day when we stand before the lord jesus christ can you imagine witnessing anything more shocking if you're viewing it happening to somebody else you see in these passages it shows that it's it's not our words that count It is only the words of Jesus that carry authority. And we see in verse 22 that he does not say on that day, one or two people are going to say to me, Lord, Lord, and I'm going to say, I never knew you. He doesn't say just a small minority, just a few. He says many. There is coming a day which is going to be utterly surprising and utterly shocking. Many, he says, will say to me. The focus is on their words, and their words count for nothing. Will say to me, Lord, we did all this stuff in the church, so to speak. We prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We did many miracles in your name. But only the words of Jesus count. Only his words carry authority. And he says in verse 23, I will say... I never knew you. I never knew you. And doesn't that tie in with what we hear week in and week out in this place and places like this. It's all about being in a relationship of knowing the Lord Jesus in a relationship. Not knowing about him. Not enjoying singing things about him or reading words about him. But it's about knowing him. About being in this relationship with him. Now, I've done an injustice to verse 21, so let me finish it. I only read half of it. Verse 21 says, it says that, uh, he says, many will say to me uh, that, uh," sorry, no, I've got that wrong. He said, not everyone, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of the Father. Now, this verse has been misunderstood. People have taken it out of context. They've said, well, here we go. Here's the proof that my salvation is not down to what I believe, not down to my faith, but it's about what I do, what I have done. Because that's what Jesus said. Only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And so they talk about justification by works. And and it is a nonsense. It's a nonsense when we put it even into the perspective of the rest of the passage that we're looking at. It is the very people who can point to those works who are excluded. They are the works of God. Yeah, they are the works. Prophesying in, in the name of Jesus. Doing many miracles in the name of Jesus. Casting out demons in the name of Jesus. They are the works. They could point to many works. But they counted for nothing. If you look at uh, Luke in chapter 9, you'll see that there was a time when Jesus sent out his 12 disciples and it says he gave them power to cure diseases and to drive out demons. And it happened. And when the 12 came back, they rejoiced and they were almost shocked and they said to Jesus, it happened very significant. It does not say that, well, for 11 of us it happened, but for Judas it didn't happen. Judas had that same power, power to cure illnesses, power to drive out demons. There are mysteries which we know nothing about. So if it's not pointing to justification by works, what is this verse pointing to? What is this will of God? Well, again, there are so many verses we could use to kind of put this into perspective. I've chosen another one from John in chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse 40, words of Jesus. He says, For my Father's will is... Here's the answer. It's so clear. Jesus is saying, This is my Father's will. Is that everyone who looks to the Son... And believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. It's the absolute opposite to what that parable was saying about a great crash. There's coming a day, and despite the storm, there are those who the Lord Jesus will rescue, and they will be raised up. They won't come crashing down. And it's all about the foundation, isn't it? That's what Jesus was teaching in this parable. And so Paul helps us. When he was writing his letter to the Corinthians, first letter he wrote uh, in chapter 3, verse 11, Paul says very clearly, no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. The foundation is not works, not what we have done, the foundation is our Saviour. The foundation is the Lord Jesus Christ. See, over these these weeks we've we've covered so much ground as we've shared this time with Jesus up on the Mount of Beatitudes. We've thought about the influence we should have in society, what it what it means to be sought, what it means to be light. We've we've thought about not living legalistic lives, but instead recognizing the spirit of the law. We've thought about what our love looks like. We've thought about how to pray. We've thought about how to give. We've thought about how to discern and yet not be judgmental. We've thought about what we treasure. We've thought about what we put our trust in. We've thought about what it is that we serve. We've covered so much ground. Uh, And we have to end by just making two points. And, And they're crucial points in the light of the parable of the wise and foolish builders. All this ground that we've covered over recent weeks. Has it changed me at all? Am I different now? to what I was 13 weeks ago? That was the foolish builder, wasn't it? Who heard the words of Jesus, but did nothing with them? So that's serious. But there is something that we have to say which is even more serious. You could say yes to that question. You could say, yes, I have changed. Yes, I am trying my best to love my enemies. Yes, I am trying to live a life where I turn the other cheek in a way that I never would have done. I'm trying to live my life where I go the second mile in a way that I never could have done before. And yet, that might make you a better person. That might make you a nicer person. That might make you more pleasant to be with. But what Jesus says is that all those things will count for nothing if he himself is not our foundation. If our very lives are not built on him. And that takes us, I know we're coming down the mountain, but I want to take us all the way back to when we went up. It takes us back to the beginning. Do you remember the introduction we had way back in, in April? That, that we learned... The Beatitudes, we learn that the real blessing of God comes to us when we come to that stage in our lives where, where we recognize that there is nothing in us to commend us to God. We bring him absolutely nothing. We have to be brought to that stage when we see our sinfulness in such a way that it brings tears to our eyes. The Beatitudes talk about blessed are those who mourn in that way. We have to come to that place in our lives where we want so much to be right with God that we hunger and we thirst after that and we seek that more than anything else. And what brings us to that point? Well, very simply, this I hope we have enjoyed walking up the Mount of Beatitudes with the Lord Jesus. I hope we have learned many things. I hope we are being challenged to change in one way or another. But we have to recognize, we have to remember that about 110 miles or so south of the Mount of Beatitudes, there is another hill. And there's another hill that Jesus climbed. This time, not with us, but for us. It was a hill that only he could climb because he was going to do something that only he could do. It was a hill he climbed carrying a cross. It was a hill where he was going to lay down his life with me in mind. I can't get over it. Laying down his life with me in mind. And so to speak enduring the great crash that ought to have been waiting for me so that one day he might lift me up instead for an eternity to come. That is the foundation which is essential that we build our lives upon. The words of an old hymn are are coming to me, hopefully. (laughs) Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me saviour or I die. May we know the power of those old-fashioned words, and may we use them as a prayer. We have uh, another song to worship our Lord uh, with. Uh, it's, it's almost an inevitable song that I, that I could choose because it, it says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus. His blood His righteousness, that is what my life is built on. That is what my hope is built on. And if you are a wise builder, you can stand and you can sing this song and and know that it means something to you. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus. And if you are a foolish builder, well, we'll never know it. We won't recognize it. But actually, you can only sing with any meaning the first six words of that song. My hope is built on nothing. May God help us as we worship him and stand together.